0: Welcome to the Homeland Heroes Salute, a podcast dedicated to sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. We are your hosts, Phil Taub and Dave Tilley. Hi, this is Phil Taub and welcome to Homeland Heroes Salute, another awesome podcast. Uh, Our guest, returning guest actually uh, from the Coast Guard, Bob Hendrickson is with us. Uh, you may recall that uh, we already did a podcast with Bob and uh, another co-see, Jim Spots, talking about their experience in the aftermath of the uh, earthquake in Haiti. A fascinating podcast. And if you haven't heard it, I suggest you go back and, and try that. But we've got Bob Sola tonight. We didn't get a chance in the last podcast to really get into his career. So, very, very excited. Bob, welcome. To the Homeland Heroes Salute podcast.
1: Thanks a lot, Phil. I'm excited to be here.
0: Well, it's great to have you here. Let's uh, let's let's rewind all the way back to the beginning, Bob. Uh, you know, maybe middle school, high school. Did you always want to be in the Coast Guard? Like how how did that come about that you chose a career in the Coast Guard?
1: Well, I, I guess it
0: would start
1: probably when I was in my teens. Um, My grandmother lived in Key Largo, Florida, and uh, uh, my dad and I used to go down there and visit her, and we would go out in the boat, and I learned how to drive boats and navigate using paper charts, Um, and uh, my dad was a police officer, and I was always, you know, kind of thought that that would be a cool career. Um, But, uh, you know, this was back in the days when uh, emergency was on, and Unit 51, and, uh, Randolph Mantooth was, you know, John Gage, and he was pretty cool as a paramedic. So I thought, wow, something on the water. I could be a cop and I could be a paramedic. Holy crap! It's the Coast Guard. Uh, I grew up in Cleveland, and uh, I'll I'll never forget. It was my junior year of high school, and uh, you know, if you're familiar with Cleveland in the winter time, I was out shoveling snow. And uh, we we lived on a corner lot. So we had a really long, long sidewalk. And I'd finished the driveway and I'd finished the sidewalk. And I'd been out there for about two hours. And I had snot sickles coming out of my nose. And uh, I couldn't feel my hands. I couldn't feel my feet. And I was heading into the house. And along came the snowplow. And he piled up about three feet, (laughs) <laughs> of just dirty, slushy, nasty snow at the end of the driveway, which of course I had to to shovel out. And so for the next 45 minutes, I was able to contemplate how can I get myself out of Cleveland. And then it hit me, I'm going to learn how to speak Spanish, join the Coast Guard and live the rest of my life in Miami. And that's how it worked. Awesome.
0: Awesome. All right. So you did you sign up for the Coast Guard right out of high school? Or did you go to college first? No,
1: I signed up for the Coast Guard my junior year. I was I seriously, I went, I went almost from shoveling snow. I went downtown to Cleveland, uh downtown Cleveland and uh, yeah. signed up with the Coast Guard. I signed up on the delayed entry program. Uh, it was actually, I think, March of my senior year was when I signed up. And so um I did uh, about nine months in the inactive reserve as a delayed entry program and went to boot camp uh, the January after I graduated from high school.
0: And and where was boot camp? Well, boot
1: camp in those days, uh, we had two. We had one in Cape May, New Jersey, which is still there. And we had one in Alameda, California. uh, And that's where I went was uh, Alameda.
0: Okay, so you get to boot camp. And and so you're going through it now right away. What are your first impressions? Is it what you had hoped it would be? You thought it was going to be. Was it different? Well, when I first got there,
1: um, they were they were closing down the Alameda boot camp, so there weren't a whole lot of supplies, and there weren't any blankets or sheets or anything for the bed, and it was cold and rainy as San Francisco can be uh, in January. So. Yeah. I, uh, I remember I slept for the first three nights. I slept between two mattresses just to try to stay warm. Um, and I'm thinking, wow, this this may not be what I thought I signed up for. But uh, it worked out. We eventually got our uniforms. I eventually got a hat to wear on my bald head. And uh, uh, from there, it uh, it was good.
0: Excellent. And so what happens after boot camp? Where do they send you? So
1: my first duty assignment after boot camp was this little rock in the middle of the Pacific Ocean called Johnston Atoll. Uh, It was a Loran Sea Station, which is an electronic aid to navigation that we had long before we had GPS. Um, And uh, it was a half a mile wide, a mile and a half long, about seven feet above sea level at the highest point. Um, And uh, yeah, it was a Coast Guard. It was an Air Force. Defense Nuclear Agency uh, base. Uh, Coast Guard was there for Loran Station and uh, the uh, 82nd Chemical Corps from the U.S. Army was there. And it it used to be a place where uh, the U.S. housed all of their nerve gas stores and their Agent Orange. That's all been uh, destroyed since then but uh yeah it was an interesting place to live you got off the plane and the very first thing they did was give you a, a gas mask and three shots of atropine and uh wow you don't leave home without it
0: wow yeah seriously so i've heard from other you know folks on the coast guard that you know some of the initial stuff you got to sort of deal with is like seasickness right put you on a ship and. Mm -hmm. You know, bounce you around and so forth. Did you have any of those kinds of issues when you started? So,
1: you know, Johnson Island was a land station. Uh, I was there for about a year and then I went to Quartermaster A school, uh, which is a quartermaster. uh, We don't have them anymore, but they were the navigators on the ships, navigators and visual communications. So I went to Quartermaster A school in Orlando, Florida, and reported to my first ship, Coast Guard Cutter Decisive, in St. Petersburg, Florida. And I will never forget, it was my first time to get underway, and uh, we got underway. We're heading down to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And Phil, we weren't even out of Tampa Bay, and I was already feeling sick. And I'll never forget thinking to myself, what? Have I done? Not only am I on this ship for the next three years, probably. Right. uh, But I am a quartermaster, which means that my next duty assignment is going to be a ship. And I wanted to do this as a career. Uh, And so I was seasick for the next 30 to 40 days straight. Right. And I lost like 15 pounds. And back then I didn't have 15 pounds to lose. Uh, but after that, I got over it and I can count, you know, with 16 years at sea, uh, in my career, I can count the number of times that I've been seasick on probably two hands.
0: Wow. And so what happens? You just, you, you just get through your body, just adjusts or.
1: Well, it did for me. I acclimatized to it and, uh, you know, uh, 20, 30, 40 foot seas. I just, it was
0: okay. Yeah. That is incredible. Lucky. That really Yeah. No, listen, good for you. And so, and so, you know, you're adapting to the seasickness and you're probably adapting to life on a ship, right? That's correct. Uh, yeah. And so tell us a little bit about that. What is life like on a Coast Guard cutter?
1: Well, uh, this was a 210-foot medium endurance cutter. And back in those days, we didn't have quarters off the ship. Uh, if you were junior enlisted, so uh, E-2, 3, 4, and 5, uh, you lived on board the ship. Uh, and that meant that you had a rack, you had a storage space underneath your rack, uh, and a small uh, locker, stand up locker. And it was tight living. Uh, so I wound up moving off the ship and just paying out of pocket uh, to rent a small apartment with uh, one of my shipmates. And uh, but underway, you know, it was great. It was the, the crew was incredibly, incredibly tight. Uh, probably one of the the most tight-knit crews that I've ever sailed with. And to me, you know, that throughout my career was the one thing that just uh just made everything worthwhile was the the camaraderie that you feel with the people. Uh, that you're working with.
0: Yeah, that really, that's, yeah, you're right. And that's a very special thing, right? And so, you know, you're still a Philly junior guy, right? And you're mm-hmm. now seeing different folks in command. You know, when at what point in your career, you know, do you look at, you know, the guy in charge and go, I wanna be that guy, right? I wanna be in command of a of a ship here.
1: Yeah, that was definitely my first ship, Um, Hank Jacoby. uh, He went by the name of Jake. Of course, I didn't call him Jake. I called him Captain. Uh, But uh, Commander Jake Jacoby, uh, he was a former quartermaster who went through officer candidate school, got his commission, and uh, rose up through the ranks. Uh, I believe he retired as a captain. Um, But uh, at that time, he was a, uh, a commander in command of Cutter Decisive. And I wanted to be just like Jake.
0: That's awesome. And and do you think you were looking back?
1: Uh, I don't think anybody could be like him. He was yeah. <laughs> he was just awesome, and uh, yeah. But uh, I I tried to emulate him, and there there were a few other officers uh, that I really tried to emulate as I grew up.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I know. Look, in in my my main career is as an attorney. And I've been doing it for 28 years and and I have always tried, like every time I met somebody and I saw something I liked, I'm like, I'm keeping that piece. I, I want to, mm-hmm. you know, do that really well. And so I look at my own career and I, there's been a lot of mentors, but I, I can't just pick one. I feel like I've tried to become an amalgam of a bunch of them and, you know, try to take the best from a bunch of different people. Folks, I'm not sure I've totally lived up to that as well, but like I've tried, you know, uh, for each of these pieces, and so you know, you go on to you know, 39 years right in the coast guard, 16 years afloat, eight ships, three commands at sea, you know, which is really impressive. I mean, I'd love to just pick your brain a little bit about, like, you know, so, so what makes a great leader in the coast guard, right? And and I'm sure there's a lot of adversity, right? People on top of each other, you're out in the ship, you're kind of on your own. There's weather, there's, you've got a mission, right? Lots of missions, yep. you know, but through all of that, you know, what's, what, what, what does great leadership look like?
1: To me, I think great leadership is paying attention to your people. Um, you look out for them and it doesn't matter whether they're your executive officer or the new seaman, who's just got qualified as a lookout. They're all people and they're all incredibly important to the mission of the ship or mission of the unit. I mean, it's not just on a ship. Yeah. And you take care of those people. Um, in fact, I, I, uh, I'm going to brag a little bit. I, uh, I got a, an email today from one of my former shipmates. Uh, he was a seaman on uh, Mohawk, uh, my second command and uh he made warrant officer uh about a month ago and uh he just got selected for command afloat of a fast response cutter down in miami florida and he reached out to me and let me know about it and uh you know just to me that was really touching you know to me that's legacy and that's leadership is what you not what you take away but what you give back and uh leave behind
0: that, no, that's really awesome. That's awesome. I, I've heard this term in the Navy, uh, a sea daddy. Yeah, that's something that exists in the Coast Guard too.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah. I uh, I can tell you exactly who my sea daddy was.
0: Yeah, well, explain explain what a sea daddy is a little bit and how that works. I think that'd be good for Alex okay, and-
1: sure. Um, it, it's sort of a kind of sort of a mentor mentee relationship, but but not in that. Formal kind of framework. Yeah. Uh, it's usually a senior person. Oftentimes, you know, if if you're a junior enlisted person, it's either a, a chief or a senior petty officer, or sometimes an officer. Uh, in my case, since I spent a lot of time on the bridge, uh, it was one of the junior officers who was my sea daddy. His name was Mike Parks. Uh, he retired uh, from the Coast Guard as a two-star admiral, and I got to say, it didn't surprise me to see it um and uh he took me under his wing and and kind of showed me the ropes and gave me some tough love and uh helped get me on target and tracking with uh with the coast guard and with my career and and with how things go on a ship
0: and and is that a formal process you know that the coast guard sort of oversees or is that more of an informal process that just kind of develops
1: Sea daddying is an informal process. Uh, The Coast Guard has adopted some more formalized mentorship programs, Uh, but being a sea daddy is just, you know, if if two people seem to find some common ground and uh, uh, the leader wants to take that junior person under his or her wings and kind of sponsor them up, uh, yeah, that's a very informal program. Uh, I wouldn't even call it a program, it's just kind of a, a rite of passage and a practice.
0: Right, right. Well, you know, as I mentioned before, 39 years, right, uh, as a Coast Guard veteran, including three commands at sea, right? That's that's probably a lot of highs and maybe even some lows, uh, you know, in, in the course of your career. Love for you to share some of the highs. I, I know a lot happened in your career It'll be hard just to pick out a few things, but, you know, give us a flavor of some of the, 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 the things you saw and the things that you enjoyed the most in your career.
1: Well, you know, there's there's nothing quite the same as a career at sea. Um, you know, there is no other job in the world where you're going to conduct a line crossing ceremony when you cross the equator or taking the ship down to cross the equator and the international dateline at the same place or the prime meridian at the same place or crossing the arctic circle um seeing just billions of stars at night or being operating up north and and seeing the northern lights um and being at sea and and seeing all of these things and the, the sunrises and the sunsets and the green flashes and you know, just the the grandeur of nature, I think, and then the awe of nature. You know, being being out in some of the most horrific seas that you could ever imagine. You know, I'll never forget being in the Bering Sea when I was CEO of uh, Weishi. You know, and and you're standing on the bridge wing of this massive four hundred plus foot ship, and you're looking up at the top of the waves you know you're in 40 plus foot seas and yeah. and you know and your your job is to make sure that the ship is safe um i remember uh one time we were coming back from africa uh this was when i was ceo of mohawk and uh we uh we stopped for fuel and um in the uh cabo verde islands and that's where hurricanes spawn up from and we wound up coming back across the atlantic ocean between two hurricanes otherwise we just weren't going to get home we were going to sit there in cape uh, cape verde for uh who knows how long waiting for a, a window where we could you know come across without having a hurricane behind us or in front of us so you know just just the grandeur of nature and some of the cases that i was able to participate in just there were highs and some really deep lows with those cases i think we talked about haiti uh previously um you know one of the one of the lows was just coming into port-au-prince harbor and seeing this place where i had been so many times and i knew like the back of my hand which was good because most of the aids to navigation were destroyed and and most of the buildings ashore were destroyed and just the utter devastation of this place but at the same time, the high was watching watching my friend Jim spots his face when they called and told him that uh, there had been a baby born on board his ship, the Cutter Tahoma uh, by one of the one of the people that uh, were rescued. So you know, just so many highs and lows. I, I I will say that I think probably the highest high that I had though was um, a ship driver, me, was able to be the guest speaker at my son's graduation from flight school. And uh, having a an old knuckle dragon ship driver, educating a bunch of uh, smart young Navy and Coast Guard aviators was uh, was really a highlight of my career.
0: That's awesome. This is your son Garrett, right? Who's now a helicopter pilot in the Coast That's Guard? That's
1: correct. Yeah, he's uh, he flies H-60s out of Clearwater, Florida.
0: That's awesome. That's going to make you so proud obviously for many reasons, right? But was there ever any doubt he was going to join the uh, Coast Guard? He wasn't teasing you and saying he was going to join the army or anything like that, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, he actually he broke my heart and said that he wanted to join the air force and become a doctor. Um fortunately, he came to his senses. He married right. a doctor and uh joined the Coast Guard and flies helicopters.
0: Oh, that's, that's fantastic. How long has he been in for?
1: Uh, gosh, uh, since 2014. So seven, yeah. gosh, seven years. gravy.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. And so for him growing up, are you, you know, how, how much time are you spending away from home while he's growing up on ships? And how much time are you around?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's one of the low points is, uh, you know, Christmas Eve at sea, you know, yeah. you're you're there with a hundred of your best friends but you're missing your family and uh that uh that's always hard it's always hard but uh you know everyone's there to support each other and and back home all of the families are supporting each other too so right. it's kind of a it's a, it's a unique sort of uh little club
0: right yeah but it's hard right this is all service comes with some sacrifice not just for you and but for your families right and I often hear from veterans that you know you're exactly where you want to be doing what you want to do and what you trained to do and you know mm-hmm. uh, our, our country is counting on you to do what you were trained to do um but you know the families you know are are not living that same experience right there's they're sacrificing so that even though you know i think most families are very supportive it's still very hard right
1: yeah absolutely and you know i mean uh, it's sad, and and it's it's not just cliche. It's it's the honest truth that um, being a military spouse or a military family member is really the hardest job in the military. It truly
0: is. Yeah, yeah, no, that is for sure. I mean, what what is some of the other tough moments in in a long career? You you probably saw a lot of stuff. I know you were, you guys are like first responders, if you will. Right. And some really tough things from from Haiti to to various other places. You know, I mean, talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Um, one case that kind of sticks out in my head is uh, when I was a search and rescue controller in San Juan, Puerto Rico. It was New Year's Eve, 1986, and uh, the uh, DuPont Plaza Hotel uh, had a horrendous fire. Uh, I coordinated uh evacuation of survivors off the roof uh with coast guard and uh Puerto Rican National Guard helicopters uh and you know if I remember correctly 113 people died in that fire uh just horrible um yeah but uh you know we 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 try not to dwell on the you know, on the bad parts, we we try to dwell on the good
0: parts. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, but but, you know, my guess, you know, I, I love thinking about the crews, you know, that you serve with and all those people. And I, I want to go back to the 20 to 40 foot swells, right? I mean, I know you guys trained for this, but but how nervous are you? I mean, the ships are built for a lot of this stuff, but, but every, everything has its breaking point, right? Yeah, you know, so like, are true. you thinking like, we got this, we'll be fine. We got to keep heading in this direction. Or you're like, holy cow, we can only handle this for like another five minutes. We're not going to make it like how, how bad is that?
1: Well, you know, it, it, I think you really kind of captured it when you said keep heading in this direction. Uh, we were we were running into the seas at a slow bell. So we were just kind of riding up on it and then riding down on it. But the problem was, was I had to eventually I was going to have to turn around and make for Dutch Harbor um, because the the weather was actually going to get worse. And I needed to pull into Dutch Harbor, uh, Alaska, in order to tie the ship up and hunker down. Um, and the problem is, is when you have to turn you get sideways to that forty-foot swell, and that's really the worst possible scenario for a ship. Um, so, uh, I went to bed at about I don't know, eleven o'clock, and I told the bridge watch, "Call me at, call me at about two, and let's see how the weather is. We'll see if we're ready to turn because we needed we needed to have the seas lay down a little bit." Yeah. Uh, I didn't want to turn in a forty plus foot swell. Uh, it's not career enhancing. So right. <laughs> yeah, uh called them they called me at two and said, no, still pretty nasty. Uh, I said, all right. well, call me at three. Still pretty nasty. They called me again at three thirty and said it had laid down to about, you know thirty footers. So I went up to the bridge, and, uh, you know from from my perspective, if something bad happens to the ship, I'm, I'm, I'm ultimately responsible. So, uh, I took the con, uh, which means I took control of driving the ship. And, uh, because I, I, I didn't want anybody else to be, you know, feel responsible if something got sideways. So, uh, I took the con and, uh, I'm looking, I'm watching the waves with a, a night vision scope. And waiting for just the right moment. And when it happened, we accelerated and we twisted as hard as we could and we got through the wave. And everything was good. We went into Dutch Harbor the next uh, morning and laced the ship in nice and tight. We had 26 mooring lines out and uh, later that night we we had uh, 103 knots of wind uh buffeting the ship there it picked up a building on the pier and dropped it between us and the pier Uh, so i i had set up the ship so that our stern the back end of the ship was pointing into the wind so that if we blew out a window it would be a back window not one of the front windows that we needed and we were backing at three knots um as we were tied to the pier and just holding position so Yeah, it was, it was an exciting night. (laughs) I'd rather not do it again, but I, I would not trade having done it for the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really something, huh? To be able to do all that. Awesome. And, and so look, you had a long career in the, uh, in the Coast Guard in 39 years. And, and so I'd love to talk to you about, like, I'm sure the, the Coast Guard continued, continued to evolve that whole time, right? I mean, all, oh, yeah. all of our military does. Maybe share some thoughts about some of the changes that you saw, you know, from when you started to when you retired and give us a sense of, of what some of those changes look like for the Coast Guard.
1: Yeah, you know, so coming in, in I went to boot camp in January of 82. And so when you think about it, you know, guys who had been in 20 years at that point or who were coming up on 20 had been in the coast guard since 62. Yeah. And so they, these guys were Vietnam, uh, Vietnam veterans. Uh, The coast guard had a very uh, significant presence uh, in the riverines uh, warfare in Vietnam. So, you know, a lot of these guys were Vietnam vets and, uh, you know they they had some war stories um and the coast guard the 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 way you got around in the coast guard in those days was you know uh work hard play hard kind of attitude and and it, it the pendulum swung uh not fast but slow uh over toward a, a more you know, focusing on professionalism, focusing on diversity, focusing on, um, you know, things other than hard drinking, hard living, and, you know, burning yourself out. Uh, not to say that any of those people were bad for that. It was, it was the social mores of the time. Um, but, uh, the, the Coast Guard evolved with the times and, um, in fact, I think in a lot of cases, the Coast Guard sort of led the way uh, with the times, uh, with, uh, for instance, transgendered people. Um, one of my good friends in the Coast Guard um, is a transgendered uh, uh, captain. And uh, she is, I think she just retired, but um, she was serving uh, as as a as a transgendered man, a transgendered woman, and uh, doing her job, and that's really what it boils down to is you know, do your job. I, I don't, I don't care who you love. I don't care where you pray. I don't care what color your skin is. I don't care what what your native tongue is. Do your job, and that's yeah. that's what's important.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's really awesome. I mean, it's got to be a great source of pride, you know, for you and everybody serving the Coast Guard, uh, for sure. Um, What what about like, um, you know, the drug interdiction stuff, right? I mean, I think most people don't know how much work the Coast Guard does, you know, in, in trying to stop, you know, drugs from flowing into our country. And of course, you know the cartels are bringing people in as well, right? That's a big business for them as well. Uh, I've seen some pretty awesome videos out there. I I thought they were Navy SEALs at first, but they were Coast Guard. You know, just dressed in you know total badass and jumping on top of you know little mini subs. I mean, the cartels' technology keeps getting better and better. But I'm guessing. You know, as that flow is has has increased, so is the Coast Guard's mission and attention to all of that stuff as well, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. You, you talk about how the service has changed. Um, you know, my first ship, I was a boarding officer on the Decisive, and uh, you know, back in those days, we chased down uh, converted shrimp boats that had a hundred thousand pounds of marijuana stacked up on the deck, and they could do seven knots, and it was easy to catch them, uh, and as the cartels evolved as the payloads evolved from uh 100 you know 100 tons of uh pot to you know uh 1000 pounds of cocaine uh on a go fast boat the coast guard's interdiction measures uh changed as well you know we we joined the intel community we started uh sharing and and receiving intelligence from partner agencies uh both uh, domestic and international. Uh, and uh, we leveraged that. We leveraged, uh, you know, uh, our newest uh, newest ships, our helicopters with uh, helicopter interdiction squadron, hitron, the the airborne snipers, if you will, uh, that shoot out the engines on these uh, go fast boats. And um, yeah, the Coast Guard has really evolved, uh, leveraging partnerships with other agencies, with other countries uh, to assisting the interdiction mission. And, um, yeah, so, you know, I went from, uh, boarding boats where the marijuana was just sitting out there on deck to, right. uh, you know, bringing back, uh, a, an entire flight deck filled with, uh, pallets of uncut cocaine.
0: Amazing, huh? Amazing. And the, and the, the struggle just continues, right? The cartels are just—they just keep doing it, and oh, it's big start. business. Absolutely,
1: yeah. I mean, it's big business, and these these that we see, it's the cost of doing business for them, uh, you know, and and they're leveraging the the lives of people who really don't have any idea what they're doing or uh, don't have any choice in the matter when it comes to transporting this stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's really tough stuff. All right, terrific. And so and so what year did you uh, finally retire?
1: Uh I finally retired in 20 2020, uh April, the end of April of 2020. Um so it was uh it was good. It was a good run.
0: It was time, right?
1: Yeah, it was. Um there really wasn't any place for me to go. Uh yeah. I was uh I was an 06. I had already had two, actually two. Uh, 06 commands uh the Cutter Weishi, one of the uh, national security cutters and prior to that I was the CEO of patrol forces Southwest Asia over in the Middle East um so you know I I wasn't going to get another shot at that and uh, uh I was I was about 10 years older than most of my peers uh in my year group so um but that's okay you know I I really enjoyed my t- I got to see the world um I got to be, you know, I uh, I was in Ukraine um, uh, back in 2009, uh, board Cutter, Dallas, uh, in the Crimea, actually, in Sevastopol. Uh, we pulled in there for about a five or six day port call. And, you know, getting to see different countries in the Baltics, getting to see different countries in South America, getting to you know go to uh africa and to go to tahiti and to go to you know north of alaska and just all the different places that i've been able to go and and the things i've been able to do and see uh it's really made it an incredibly rewarding career for me
0: amazing and so along those lines i mean what would you tell you know uh somebody in high school maybe thinking about joining the military specifically, the Coast Guard, you know, what, what what kind of advice would you share with them?
1: Well, you know, it's funny because I've actually just been helping out a young friend of mine uh, who's looking to join the Coast Guard. And, you know, I can tell you what my experience has been, and it it, it was an incredibly rewarding experience. Um, you know, it, it taught me a lot about responsibility. It taught me how to get along with people of, all different backgrounds. And they took good care of me. They, they took care of me in terms of my medical. Um, I'm a stage three colon cancer survivor. Uh, I, had, I, I got my cancer diagnosis while I was on active duty. Uh, Coast Guard sent me to Bethesda, got me treated, took care of me. Uh, and so um, they take care of you. They'll take care of your family. And it's a great way to start life. It's not something that you have to do forever like I did. Uh, but if you want to, that's great. And if not, it gives you a great foundation for anything you want to do anywhere in the world.
0: No, that's great advice. It's, it's really thank you for thank you for sharing that. And so now, uh, you know, post Coast Guard career, what, uh, what have you been doing to keep busy?
1: Well, I've uh, been able to leverage uh, some of my time at sea and my experience on ships uh, with a small defense contractor uh, here in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, most of my work, uh, I'm a project manager and vice president. Uh, and so most of my work focuses on either uh, instructional design uh, or human factors engineering, which is the human systems integration piece. Um, I was telling Alyssa before we started here, you know, I, I would often bang my head against something on a ship and, and curse whoever it was that decided that that needed to go there. And that's what human factors engineering is. It's figuring out that that's not a good place to put that particular thing because people are going to bump their heads on it. So I'm able to bring a little bit of that real world experience to, uh, to the smart people uh who do the designing of ships today
0: yeah yeah that's awesome and are you still spending time on the ocean i have not been on a boat since since i left my last ship to be totally honest with you yeah i mean look i mean some people miss it and some people like i did all that i you
1: know i well, I take that back. I have been out on a ship. I've been out on uh, one of the Navy's uh, new unmanned surface vehicles. Uh, that was one of my projects that I was doing in a 190-foot ship and teaching young Navy folks how to drive it was absolutely fantastic. But I, I will say you know, that the traditional uh, retirement gift uh, for someone in the sea service is an oar. And a lot of people get oars, but they don't understand why they get oars. It's traditional, a traditional retirement gift, because what you're supposed to do with that ore is walk inland until someone asks you what that big hunk of wood that you're carrying around does. And that's where you set up your retirement home.
0: Oh. Love that. Love that. Oh, that's pretty much says it all. So no, that's great. Stop. I I wanted to ask you. I meant to ask you this. So, favorite place you ever visited in your service? Wow, that's really
1: hard because so many different places have just yeah. really.
0: <laughs>
1: Gosh, I, it... China was really neat because I got to go on the uh, the Great Wall. Um, the uh, uh gibraltar was cool because i got to uh, actually re-enlist someone at the top of the rock of gibraltar um oh, nice. morocco was very cool i taught a course in morocco for two weeks um just uh, you know uh that's one unique thing about the coast guard if you want to stay home and stay close to home and stay close to the usc board you can do that uh if you want to see the world you can absolutely do that, too, because the Coast Guard has uh, influence and people relate to the Coast Guard uh, in a completely different way than they relate to any of our other services. Yeah. And the the world wants more Coast Guard. I, I learned that uh, operating in the Pacific uh, and in Africa, the world wants more Coast Guard. And so does the Navy. And so does uh, so do the other services because of the unique things that we bring to the table.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's terrific. Well, you know, let me, let me thank you for your service and uh, you know, tell you how much we all appreciate, you know, your, your service and your family service. Right. And I'm glad that was a great career for you. I mean, and now you have your son right serving in, in the Coast Guard as well. So that's really just going to be a wonderful thing. And, very much appreciate you joining our Homeland Heroes Salute podcast and and sharing some of that with us. So thank you for all that.
1: Well, Phil, thank you, thank you for what you do uh, here with with Homeland Heroes Salute, and you know, giving people a chance to tell their story and and uh, people giving people a chance to hear these stories about uh, service and and what what they can do uh, it, with a life of service. And uh, thank you for what you do. I appreciate you.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. This podcast is a co-production brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation, an organization dedicated to the re support of active duty service members, veterans and their families in their time of need. And Dairy Cam, who believes a better world starts with a connected community. To learn more, visit homelandheroesfoundation.org and dairycam.org. Follow the Homeland Heroes Salute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for listening, and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Heroes Salute wherever you listen to podcasts. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. Views expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the uniformed services the Homeland Heroes Foundation, Dairy Cam, Swim With a Mission, HarborCare, Veterans First, or any other organization.